0: At what
1: point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male
0: colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined today by Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. How are you on this fine Tuesday morning, Josh? I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, we're here in the uh, the very active fog of war section of the legislative session.
1: Yeah, I, you know. But, a lot but, going
0: on. Yeah, but it's fun. This is where, you know, I mean, in some ways it really starts to take shape, you know, yeah. in some ways. That's yeah, funny. I was around a lot of legislative people last night at a good event, but I, fun was not a, a word I heard a lot. Well, you know, I have a certain distance from the thing that allows yeah. me to have more fun maybe than most. I think for those yeah, into it up in their neck is a little more of a sloggy feel. Although, you know, I I shouldn't say that. I mean a a little more positive than I thought. There were a lot of people kinda going, Yeah, you know, we're where we are in the session. The, you know, the macro situation is what it is. Yeah. You know. But uh but but I would have to say I did not hear the word fun much. Oh. Um, oh, exactly. Poor poor folks. Wow. Oh. So, you know, apropos of that stage of the session, as as the session unfolds, you know, the discussion of what the most important policy areas and and legislation are, you know, in this very busy midsection of the session continues, um, you know, particularly amidst the session with a lot of competing top priorities. Now, I think there's a a lot of agreement on what those priorities are. I mean, I... Broadly. You know, well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think what the, you know, what the, what the specific form is, which is, you know, a a different thing. But I mean, I, you know, did a panel over the weekend for, um, uh, one of the engineering, the, the big engineering professional group, great group. I appreciated being invited and, you know, panel with Harvey Kromberg and, and the GA person, one of the GA folks from, from that organization, um, And there wasn't a lot of disagreement over what the big chunks are. Yeah, You know, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff bubbling under. And of course, what's going to happen within those big policy areas. Sure. But I I thought what we'd do today is try to explore some of the underpinnings of one of the more common explanations of or speculation about what is driving those priorities and not even the big ones, but the more hot button priorities that we're seeing. And I, I think, you know, those are two different things. So if we're saying, look, there's, you know, there's going to be a property tax cut, um, you know, there's, you know, like, you know, where there's going to be fighting over a voucher bill, you know, but there's going to be something done in the, the nexus of education and property taxes. right? Um, you know, we know that there's a lot of money to spend in the budget. That's one thing, but, I think what, you know, certainly you and I get asked a lot and and Mm -hmm. certainly in the past week where we saw hearings on a lot of the very controversial bills that are out there, you know, a lot of questions, you know, are kind of revolving around the attention being paid to things like treatment of of trans kids, um, particularly medical treatment. Um, you know, limiting women's rights and abortion access, uh, education about, you know, educational and curriculum material about race and sex, you know, the content of library books and their availability, issues like this. um, You know, and I think the common explanation, you know, that we hear mostly is that The attention to these issues reflects the dominance of intensely conservative voters and the most engaged Republican partisans. And we make reference to this in the podcast all the time that, you know, a powerful force here is the primary dynamic in the Republican Party and the fact that the Republican primary is so important and so crucial to the vast majority of incumbents that are, you know, Nominally, at least, you know, at you know, controlling the levers of the legislative process, and and controlling kind of, you know, the big inputs on the agenda.
1: Well, and, and you know, and even say, and even very recently, controlling the shape and nature of those districts in such a way that, in many ways, even further entrenches the centrality right. of the Republican primary into their reelection prospects. Right.
0: So, so I mean, so I what I thought we'd look at a little bit today, in part, and you and I were talking about this obviously in the run up. You know, I I think we've taken kind of a, you know, different looks at this at different points in time. But I I thought it would be a good idea to treat it as a little bit of, you know, not to be the guys we are, an empirical question. Ah,
1: (laughs) I love empirical questions. You know,
0: in other words, (laughs) you know, if if we are going to attribute the energy on issues like this Mm -hmm. to the influence of Republican primary voters – And I'll let you talk a little bit about different ways of operationalizing that. Sure, You know, is that evident in a consistent way in the polling data that we have? So let's start with that. So, you know, uh, well, and before we start, you know, and that also obviously leads to a backup question that is subsidiary to this, which is, you know, probably equally important in the longer run in terms of thinking about, you know, playing out the logic of that proposition, Mm -hmm. because obviously the other part of that proposition, if he's saying, look, where things matter are Republican primaries, and that is an internal incentive for for members and for and for political actors and for you know, for that matter for the statewide's. Um, how does you know if we do if we can identify that faction in the party? How different are the attitudes of you know, for lack of a better phrase, you know, the rest of the Republicans? Right, right. I mean, how much you know, how much distance is there between their two? Is this, is there a potential for friction? Because like a lot of the you know, a lot of the times that we resort or or wind up having to reference this kind of explanation mm-hmm. is people looking at polling data that suggests that public opinion is in fact closely divided on a lot of these issues. And even on some of them, probably most prominently guns and depending on how it's framed, abortion, Republican legislators and and leaders seem to be pursuing policies that are at least, you know, in some cases at odds with the majority of public opinion. Mm -hmm. But in in other cases, though, or in other cases, you know, seem to be taking a a really pronounced or even extreme position – on issues in which public opinion is very closely divided, and wouldn't seem to bear that. So, so let's start with that. So, let's, yeah. so, so first of all, let's let's start with decomposing Republican voters. Yeah, and just, what does that look like?
1: Well, I just want to say one more thing about that because I think it's an important point here. Is you know, I, I think the way that you're talking about this. I mean, what I think about is you know, how do you how do how do the elected officials think about exposure? Yeah. And where exposure lies, and sometimes that you could say that it lies in the general election. You look at the you know the sum of public opinion. You say, oh, this is the wrong side. Sometimes you're looking at it, you know, again, just among Republicans and you're saying, okay, well, you know, let's say the state like in the last session is going to move ahead on pretty restrictive abortion legislation, pretty permissive gun legislation. And you say, well, there's about a third, a quarter to a third of Republicans who are not on board with this. But that didn't create enough exposure to stop any of it. Right. And then we move ahead to— That's an, the
0: argument. And then right? we, yeah, yeah.
1: And then we move ahead to this session. And ultimately, one of the things that's going to be apparent in the data is that, you know, first of all, Republican voters have updated their views because the policies have changed so much. But then we're at a new point now where we have to say, OK, did that third grow? Did it stay the same? But then further, the other piece of this that we always talk about is, you know, what about the most committed and most intense Republican voters? So we think, yeah, they're a small share of the party and we'll talk about this. But they're a larger share of the Republican primary electorate and they become the basis of, you know, essentially a challenge if there's reason to have discontent. And so part of this is sort of figuring out, you know, within the public opinions, you know, bands where there is are constraints potentially and how that might explain where we're seeing movement in the legislature without any sort of seeming stoppage and where maybe there's a little bit more uncertainty about what's going to happen. And I think actually the data bears out a relatively nuanced story here that's kind of interesting so first, you know, we just talk about, like, the, you know, the Republican electorate generally, right? Uh, you know, what we're looking at is we're trying to say, you know, what really we're trying to identify within that electorate, you know, first of all, where are they on these issues? But also, you know, again, where are the most conservative among them and how do yeah. we think about that? So a couple who, ways. Who are they? Who are <laughs> they? Right. So first of all, you know, seventy eight percent of Republicans and voters in Texas identify as conservative. I mean, just so this is not like there's a big divide here. There's not a ton of moderates in the Republican and Party. That's been
0: very consistent for it's a been long extremely time. Extremely
1: consistent. Yeah,
0: there's a great graph on our on the Texas Politics Project website at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. It's uh if you just search for ideological trend, trend ideological Yeah, you'll find it. You'll find it and it's 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 a pretty interesting it's a pretty interesting illustration of The internal composition of the Republican Party in terms of how they are how they identify ideologically.
1: Right. So then, within those, you know, and then we say, okay, within those conservatives, how do you know they can identify? We can divide them a little bit further. So equal shares, about thirty four percent, so about a third of Republicans identify as extremely conservative. Another thirty four percent, another third, identify as somewhat conservative, and the rest identify basically as moderate, and and a few are confused is what I would just kind of say,
0: and that's true in general. But what you mean, they they identify as liberal. Basically.
1: Okay, so about a third say they're extremely conservative. About a third of Republicans also say that Republican elected officials in Texas are not conservative enough. Now, this is important, right? We talked about the last session being, you know, one of the most conservative in Texas history, however you want to measure that or think about it or whatever. But there's still about a third of Republican voters within Republicans who say— the elected yeah, talk a little that, bit about
0: the question about yeah. How we so the way that, we do yeah. this
1: is that we once 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 people have identified whether they uh, whether they tend to identify with the Democratic or Republican Party, then after they do that, and we ask them some other questions, we say okay for Republicans, just among Republicans, we ask you know are Republican in your opinion, basically, are Republican elected officials in Texas too conservative, not conservative enough, or conservative enough? And we ask the same thing about the liberalism of Democratic elected officials to Democrats: are they liberal enough, not liberal enough, you know, too liberal? And what we find is that, you know, again, even in in a very conservative state like Texas with a very conservative legislative output, about a third of Republicans say that elected officials in Texas are not conservative enough. Now, when we look at just the extremely conservative voters, more than half of those – I'm sorry, more than half of those voters who say that the Texas Republicans are not conservative enough are the extremely conservative ones. Now, that's not surprising, right? That's – you know,
0: that should make sense, right? But we can, uh, that, that makes me feel like we're we're measuring the right thing, yeah, here. we're getting what, some measures. It would be here. weird if it was anything else. <laughs> and the uh, you know, good estimates, I should say. And
1: then if you want to say, okay, so who are who might we define as the pool of what I would say is like, you know, discontented conservatives, the people who say, I am an extremely conservative voter. I' am, you know I'm a Republican, and I don't think that Republican elected officials in Texas are conservative enough. Overall, that's about seventeen percent of of Republicans, not a huge share of the overall party. But as we're talking about, the small size probably hides, you know, relatively high rates of Republican primary participation. I think that's, pr- I think that gets borne out by anyone who looks at this data pretty closely. I think it's going to be borne out in the polling data, which it, I think it certainly is. And I think yeah. if you were to talk to any sort of, you know, again, campaign consultant about this, you know, we could quibble about what exactly is the right set of questions. But right. I think if we were to say, is this number way off in terms of an estimate?
0: Right. And this is where we have to remind people, I think, or, you know, a lot of our listeners will know this, yeah. but it's a good <clears> – <throat> Good time to say, and remember, turnout rates in Republican primaries, yeah. not very high. We're talking between 5 and 15 percent. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in in raw numbers, you know, I think in a presidential year, we're looking at a little over 2 million. In midterm years, we're looking at between 1.5 and 2.
1: Yeah, and we're talking about certainly, you know, around, you know, in yeah. terms of the overall turnout of those primaries, we're talking about 10% of the RV population, registered voter right. population. So, I mean, so when you say 17% of Republican voters are extremely conservative and don't feel like Texas is conservative enough, you know, you may be talking about a pretty large share of Yeah, yeah, a likely
0: share. Yeah, the likely share of people voting in Republican primaries among is much higher than 17.
1: Right, exactly. Okay, so that's sort of the the universe. And so then the question becomes, okay, what what kind of, you know, impact do these identifications and these overall attitudes have on the issues that we're looking at, and especially right now during the 88th session? So I think the most important thing to just say at the outset... This is important, and we said it before. Sorry.
0: The Rosetta Stone of Republican politics. Here it comes. Immigration and the border is. We should have a sound effect with this. I drum know. Roll. I'm going to think a about a drum roll sound effect would be very.
1: good. I don't know think. if that would be if I wanted. <laughs> anyway, well, i to think about that later. Production values. <laughs> if you think there's a sound that would that wouldn't be perfect for that, email Jim Henson.
0: Well, you know, basically, uh, you know, a drum roll is only if you use a drum roll in an audio recording. You're really only about a beat. You know, you're inevitably on the road to a. You know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, a little clown horn. We'll get there
1: someday if we get big enough. Okay. So, the immigration of the border is still the top tax ledge priority. When we asked, uh, you know, an open ended question in our February poll at the beginning of the session, you know, what should the legislature be focusing on? You can say anything you want. One in four voters said immigration of the border. 49% of Republicans 55% of extremely conservative voters and 58% of the discontented conservatives out there, that 17% group, said immigration the border. So we have to put that out at the outset. This is a dominant issue within Republican box, and it's really important, I think, because in a lot of ways what this does is it actually
0: creates a lot of space, right? Right, because, I mean, you know, in practical terms on the ground, that overwhelming consensus, the overwhelming presence of this among Republican voters. Which there's
1: no corollary among Democrats. Right.
0: Where there's nothing like that exactly for Democrats, as we've said in here before, in many ways has moved border security and immigration out of most of the active policy discussions mm-hmm. because, as we've mentioned in here a couple of times already, both the House and the Senate budgets... Had nearly ident- i think maybe even identical—you know—amounts yeah. of funding for immig- for border secure for state spending on border security, right? And it included a slight increase, so we're now getting in the high, you know, high range of more than four billion dollars, closer to five than four.
1: No, no one, no one in any, no one with any degree of credibility or honesty could say that the state of Texas has not committed resources to defending its border.
0: Right. I
1: mean, there's just – you just – With more to
0: come and, and, you know, I mean, there is some action on here, but it's really around, you know, relatively specific ideas. I think last week or the week before we talked about Speaker Mm Phelan, you know, including as one of his priorities, the creation of essentially a Texas – a state border patrol, broadly speaking. Right. But for purposes where we are now, it's kind of in any big sense – it's you know it's it's off the table.
1: Yeah, well, and, th- and not
0: th- off the table, but it's just it's just not in the not in the realm of debate right now. Well, one of the,
1: the, yeah, uh, and you think you know this session ends, you know, and I, I love this about Texas. We go immediately into the campaign season, and if you're a Republican elected official in that period where you start raising money, you know, either between special between before the special session or yeah. just after, or whatever, you know, ultimately the first thing you're going to say is, not only do we keep border security spending at its highest levels ever, we increased it to take on you know. Dig at the federal government, dig at Biden. Then the question becomes, okay, now what? What's right. what's what's number two on the list three, four, five, right? And in some ways, when you look at these the data that we have, you know, you can see the way that the politics within these groups, and I want to be clear, I don't think that, you know, I'm not saying that every, you know, member is sitting here looking at polling data in their district. They're elected because they're good politicians and they're out yes. there and they're listening to what their voters are telling them. It just so happens that they're telling us kind of probably something pretty similar. And I think you yeah. see that.
0: And like a lot of people, you know, they, you know, I know I this firsthand, they both pay a lot of attention to polling data even as they question and complain about it. And that's, you know, yeah, healthy skepticism is great. But, you know, the idea that, you know, they don't look at polls, they're not aware of a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of interest in this. Right. <laughs> okay. So so part of it is you say, okay, where
1: are we definitely seeing some movement in the legislature? And, you know, do we see reflections of that in the data? again, we're picking out some hot bun issues. We're not picking everything. We're sending my this... movement,
0: you you mean sort of legislative activity, Well, what I mean attention... is,
1: you know, I mean, if, if anybody's being honest at this moment in time about what's going on in the legislative process, there are— vastly more uncertainties than there are certainties, right? There are a couple of things we know are going to happen. There are a couple of things that we are pretty sure are going to happen, although the specifics of it definitely still need to play out. And there are some things that just seem to be kind of at a bit of a standstill relative to what we've seen in previous sessions, right? Right. And so if I'm looking at, you know, where are we having a bunch of high-profile hearings early? Right. Right. Who is laying the groundwork to actually get a bill to the floor and what kinds of bills are we seeing? There's some stuff where you're definitely seeing that. And there's other places that, again, have been very active in recent years where maybe you're not.
0: And again, we were talking beforehand, you know, we want to caveat this somewhat. I mean, and and you put this in perspective, but I mean, you know, as we sit here. Right. You know, there, you know, uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, you know, started messaging either last night or this morning that, you know, he finds the House version of property tax cut, unacceptable. Right, right. And so we're not saying that those big fights aren't going on out there, but we're interested in looking at these things that have been, you know, issues that have generated a lot of conflict and taken taken up a lot of time. But the committee at the committee level, then ultimately, I think right. we'll see this in in floor fights and in the you know, to some degree in the fights between the two chambers.
1: And this obviously says nothing about the thousands of thousands of bills that are about minor technical changes right. or sort of le- regulations and various or, things. Or look,
0: big, big changes, but changes that nobody, no one, you know, yeah. that, that big changes that affect a relatively or have a relatively narrow group of engaged stakeholders. Right.
1: Okay. So with all those caveats aside. Right. And more caveats to come. Yeah, Don't worry, there'll be more. Second caveat podcast. All right. So where are we seeing some movement? Well, one place I can say is you know, you're definitely seeing some movement on voting laws. I mean, the move to to reinstate the felony charge on yes. on, on, on illegal voting b- is
0: big I don't know if you watch a Big hearing yesterday, committee hearing in yesterday in the Senate with uh Senator Betancourt taking the lead.
1: Yeah. So that's I mean, that seems likely it's gonna move forward. When we asked uh Texas voters at the beginning of the session, should voting laws be made more strict, less strict, or left as they are now? Remember, this is in the context of the big omnibus voting legislation from the last session. So a lot of movement happened on this recently. But a majority of Republicans, 54%, still want to see those laws made more strict. If we look at the extreme conservatives, it's 59%. If we look at the discontented conservatives, it's 71%. So amongst those Texas Republicans who identify as extremely conservative and don't think that Texas elected officials are conservative enough, Nearly three and four say the voting laws
0: need to be made so more strict. So a lot of energy in that sector here, right?
1: And there's not a lot of disagreement too. That's the other piece. Again, yeah. to the extent that there's 54 saying more, it's not as though there's a big share saying make them less strict. There's you know there's about another third who's going to say leave them alone, and then there's some people going I don't know. Right. But the, the energy of the parties in one place on that. When we look at LGBTQIA plus or transgender related issues, you know, we can look across this data. Uh, From the last poll, 70% of Republicans say they do not personally know anyone who is transgender. And this is similar shares amongst, you know, extreme conservatives. 77% of uh, discontented uh, extreme conservatives say they've never, you know, they do not personally know a transgender person. Uh, 87 to 88% of Republicans or extreme conservatives say that the only way to define a person's gender is by the sex listed on their birth certificate. This goes up to 98% amongst uh, discontented conservatives. If we go even a little bit, bit deeper into this and sort of, you know, again, more generally in the area, 50 percent of Republicans and 70 percent of extreme conservatives say that same-sex marriage should not be legal in Texas, including 72 percent of discontented.
0: That was, a, you know, uh, that was in our August 22 poll. Mm-hmm. And, that you know, I mean, I kind of talked about that. I, that, that was kind of my answer when I got asked, you know, like, what was, you know, what struck you? What was surprising or you mm-hmm. know, what was notable in this poll? was the degree to which you know there's a lot of energy in the Republican Party that sees gay marriage in a diff, in a very different way than we think about it, I think in the rest of, in, at the national level, which is that you know we've gone through we've gone through this and we've kind of settled this. There's a, not so much. I think it's an ecological fallacy,
1: right, problem here, where people yeah. looked at the trend lines and said, oh, everybody's becoming more accepting of gay marriage. Therefore, every group is becoming more accepting of gay marriage. And that's not the case. That's yeah. not the way these things actually work. You can't make these assumptions about the subgroups from the top lines. And this is, I think, one of those things where those lines were moving in this direction. Then we had the court decision, the law changed, and the idea was, well, this was just, you know, a fait accompli. And it's like, well, actually— No, not within the public. And so ultimately, like, again, you look at that basket of just attitudes and you'd say, you know, to the extent that there are, you know, especially advocates on on the side of, you know, the LGBTQ community, especially the transgender community about sort of the lack of understanding amongst, you know, Republican elected officials towards the issues that they face, you know, this data paints a pretty clear picture of why that might be the case. This is a distant group as far as most Republicans are concerned. And just the basic premise around gender identity is not one that is endorsed.
0: Yeah. So, you know, yeah, and I, you know the basic, you know, the basic underlying construct. Right. Of gender identity. I mean, I think and I think, look, advocates you know, on the conservative side, realize this. Yeah. And that's why we're seeing a lot of the lines of argument we are, you know, this go-to move of asking people to define what a woman is. Well,
1: and, and it's one of those things, too. I mean, we're not talking about here because we're talking about the attitudes of the majority party voters and how that's driving the agenda. But right. I mean, a big reason that this also is a, is a major issue is because Democratic attitudes on this are not uniform. And there are a lot of Democrats who do not know a transgender person and do not necessarily take more alternative views of gender identity or more expansive views. And so that actually makes this, you know, a doubly good issue for Republicans because
0: really- In strict political terms. Yeah. In strict
1: strict political terms, not in any sort of moral or other terms. But the reality is, is that when 90 to 98 percent of your voters feel one way about an issue and you know the other party is you know not in sort of is not I don't want to say split, but I would say is certainly you know in a, they're not
0: fully formed. They're not, not fully, fully formed, formed attitudes that are associated with
1: yeah partisan and, then,
0: and, and and cultural scaffolding that we see in other issues.
1: Then that creates you know again a pretty good political opportunity. Right. And then when we look at the education space, another area where you definitely see a lot of activity happening, you know, we go back to our April poll we've 59 percent of Republicans, 66 percent of extreme conservatives, 69 percent of, you know, discontented extreme conservatives So not a big difference. Support efforts to remove books from public school libraries, 50 percent of Republicans, 57 percent of extreme conservatives, 60 percent of discontented conservative support efforts to limit the use of teaching materials that emphasize racism in U.S. history by public schools. And, you know, be- between about 60% of Republicans and conservatives and about 67% of, you know, discontented extreme conservatives support a school voucher program. And again, it's not to say that there's 40% on the other side of these. Things. And if anything, there's a lot of people who just haven't thought about these issues. But here again, you're seeing an area where, you know, you've got pretty much unanimity more or less, or at least in, in, the, in the direction of, of the attitudes, among Republicans in general, but also among the Republicans that, you know, an elected official should be most concerned about a Republican primary, I right?
0: Think. So yeah, so so I mean, I, yeah, the polling data is really good at illustrating, you know, I think seeing this explanation that we started with about why we're seeing movement. Now, how about in some of these areas where we're not seeing as much legislative movement? Yeah. So let's start with gun laws, where you know we've not seen much happening here, at least on on the on the Republican side. I mean, I think there are a lot of Democratic bills that have that have been filed right. that are unlikely to move. This also explains that, but. Yeah, we're talking, but focusing on the Republicans right now.
1: Right, we're talking here about you know why aren't we seeing necessarily more efforts to enshrine Second Amendment rights, which has really been you know a pretty big part of you know the the party set of issues, right? Well, look, policy has changed, and we've seen this actually. I mean, to be honest, like we've seen this before when the state went um, from concealed carry to, to permitted open carry. Republican attitudes on gun laws shifted to a much more status quo preference from a loosening preference back when that happened. And we're seeing that again in this session. When and that we, framed the discussion last time. And that yeah. framed the discussion. Now, when we look and we say should gun laws be now made more strict, less strict, or left alone, 22 percent of Republican voters say they should be made more, more strict. 51 percent say left alone. 24 percent say less strict. So that means in total, 73 percent of Republicans say leave gun laws alone or make them l- more strict. That number goes up to or goes down to 68 percent amongst those who are extremely conservative. And amongst the disconsented conservatives, that number is still 60 percent. So it's 54 percent say leave it alone. Only 6 percent say make it more strict. Let's be clear. They are extremely conservative and they don't feel that state officials are conservative enough. 39 percent would say make them less strict. But ultimately, when you look at an issue like this, that 39 percent can't drive that car necessarily. Not at least certainly it doesn't seem likely in the session after they loosen gun laws so dramatically.
0: Right. And not and not with that big you know, clear majority in the status quo category. Exactly.
1: So then another issue where, you know, I think we're seeing a lot less activity than maybe some people would have thought would be around abortion, right? Now, you can think about this in multiple ways, whether this is, you know, is the state going to clamp down on, you know, let's say, abortion funds that help provide travel expenses to people who want to travel out of state for legal abortion Medical or, abortion. access no, to
0: medical abortion. You
1: know, I mean, very importantly, yeah, this this big big question about, you know, basically essentially, you know, what happens when a when a when a, when a person goes into the hospital with a fetal abnormality that, you know, essentially makes the the, the fetus unviable, there've been a lot of stories in the news about how essentially not until that you know, sort of, that fetal problem becomes a problem with the mother's health. Can they act?
0: Yeah, and and a serious problem. It
1: has to be a serious problem. It has to be it has to be a threat to 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 her life, and that's becoming you know. I mean, again, we said a long time ago on this podcast, like these stories are going to come out, and and they are now, and they're trickling out. So, what does the, that landscape look like? Again, we ask first, just you know, generally, should they be more strict, left left alone, leave less strict? Among Republicans, sixty one percent say they should be left alone or made less strict. Forty one percent say leave them alone. Twenty percent say make them less strict. Now, look, there's still a, a third. There's still 32 percent who want stricter abortion laws. But the majority of the party at this point is is for the status quo.
0: And, and just while we're there for one second, I mean that, and that's a little. You know, you compare that to the gun share of you know, and it's a you know, it's a little bigger, right? Yeah, it's a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's a little bit bigger in
1: terms of who would have movement. Right, and, and that's the thing. And you see that with the more conservative voters here. So. What you find is that among you know those who say they're extremely conservative, it's about split. Forty-six percent say make it more strict. Forty-six percent say leave it alone. Only three percent say let make it less strict. Again, makes sense. Among the discontented, you know, extreme conservatives, fifty-two percent would make these laws more strict, but forty-four percent would leave them alone. So it's not a slam dunk. And so what you can say is there's a slight conflict here, but in a lot of ways, it can be handled. Simply it's amenable by,
0: to inaction. It's
1: very say. amenable to inaction. And when we yeah. look, we say, okay, you know, what people have been talking about in terms of where, you know, the state might act to create some more access because of just the exposure it creates would be rape exceptions, incest exceptions, and exceptions for, you know, significant fetal abnormalities. You know, 19% of Republicans, but 29% of extremely conservative voters and 36% of discontented economic conservative or discontented extreme conservative voters say abortion should never be printed in the case of rape. Uh, 22% of Republicans, 34% of extreme conservatives, 36% of these discontented conservatives say that it should never be printed in the case of incest. And really importantly here, because I think this this, this fetal abnormality issue is really like where I think the, the big – one of the big, big policy issues really is. 27% of Republicans, 36% of extreme conservatives, and 50% of discontented extreme conservatives would say that an abortion should never be available in the case of a severe fetal abnormality. And so to some extent, what that tells, I mean, what that, what that points to is like why, in my mind, you know, we're not seeing a lot of movement in this space because ultimately there's not a lot of consensus within these sort of factions of the party overall. And then in some cases, the more conservative elements of the party to move ahead even further
0: on some of these issues because they just did a lot. So what do you make of that? I mean I so let's go let's yeah. let's do this in a way let's go back to you know so <laughs> wow. so you know so the answer to our first question yeah. really you know there is a distinct set of attitudes among the wing of the party that is most conservative most discontented yeah with the extent of the conser- of conservatism and likely to be engaged with primary voters i mean right. they you know the shares you know as you went through those numbers yeah. to summarize in a lot of ways the shares of people that want more movement on what we've thought or of rightward movement, let's say, yeah, yeah, yeah more movement, yeah, in a more conservative direction, for lack of a better yeah. term, uh, in in the moment, you know, I mean, it, it's real, yeah, you know, they're there, and 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 the size of that share kind of tells us a little bit about you know relative to the larger Republican population does tell us something about what's moving and what's not.
1: Yeah, I think what's really interesting, you know, thinking about this in, in the context of the last session in this session was, you know, much of the story in the last session was, you know, this big rightward shift across a lot of policy areas. And when we would evaluate those, what we tended to find was, in, in a lot of cases, majority disapproval driven by overwhelmingly de- – overwhelming Democratic disapproval with, I would say, you know, somewhere between marginal and solid Republican support, by which I mean a majority to maybe about two-thirds. In almost all of those cases, though, there were about a quarter to a third of Republicans who were not in favor of, you know, the rightward shift on some of this stuff, who thought it was too far, whatever it might be, some of these policies. Now, what was clear, what became clear, you know, sort of the question of that session and and what became clear, clear, the answer was, you know, is that enough to create a pause? And the answer was no. Full stop, right? Yeah. But what's interesting now is, you know, you start to kind of – you go one session ahead and you look sort of at a lot of set of similar questions. The underlying policy environment has changed. And voters have have incorporated that into their views and Republican voters have incorporated that into their views. And now, you know, when you go and you say, yeah, you may still have, uh, you know, Texas right to life and the other republic – and they're pushing and they're pushing and they're pushing. But if you got, you know, 50, 60 percent of Republican voters say, yeah, that's enough. Right. Ultimately – I actually, you know, I mean the reality is I think in most cases I think they could probably, you know, I think honestly Republican leadership could probably still move ahead on some of this stuff because generally what we tend to find is a fair amount of tacit kind of approval of
0: Right. Well, that's and that's the answer to our second question, right? <laughs> right. I mean, the second question we set this up with was you know, even if there are differences, how much real you know, uh space is there mm-hmm. between this discontented group of extreme conservatives right? and, you know, the main line of the Republican Party. But
1: well, further still, and then how much distance is there between that main line of the Republican Party at any viable alternative? Right. And whether that be Democrats, Libertarian, whoever. And the point is, is that, the you know, and this is kind of where the tacit sort of support comes in. We've talked about this before. You know, the parties are not, like, interchangeable. You know, it's not like—it's not—for most voters— who are right. Republican or Democrat, it's not as though they come, you know, sort of to the political process, you know, especially if they're regular voters, and especially not people who vote in primaries, and say, well, am I going to vote for Republican or Democrat this time? As if they were, like, picking out a flavor of Gatorade. Right. It's not like that, right? It's, and I've, you know, this is a stupid analogy. It's like, do I want, you know, Gatorade or milk? <laughs> they're not the same thing. They're right. not for the not same time, not same place. We're not talking about the same stuff. And so, so in some ways, you know, that in and of itself creates a certain, you know, boundary, Right. Just right. to begin with. And that also leads, I think, to a certain amount of tacit you know, approval. I mean, ultimately, even if you're a Republican who thinks that the state's abortion laws are strict enough, if they get made a little bit stricter, it's not like that is totally askance to your view set on, you know, right. about about abortion, which is, you know, ultimately should be limited.
0: And, you know, and, and, and then, you know, when you then provide the overlay, so, you know, there's the kind of you know, product metaphor that you use. But then with the overlay of what we know about what's going on with the particular political market, if you know, Mm -hmm. stretch that a little bit. Yeah, I'd like to. You know, we know, you know, that the things that we beat on regularly in here, that the combination of negative partisanship and the polarization of the parties, and it's polarization, you know, it's the ideological polarization and sorting of the parties that makes those, you know, that creates the ground for the you know, milk Gatorade discussion, right? In that, you know, the parties are very different and they coexist on an effective dimension that's in which voters are saying, you know, I I may not be that kind of Republican, but you know what? I am not a Democrat. For sure. For sure. Not only, you know, in an environment, you know, and again, it's, you know, with Donald Trump back in the scene and having been, you know, having done this rally in Waco over the weekend and reminded us about just how close to the surface those feelings are of, you know what, all of these other guys, they're, you know, psychopaths and, you know, predators and groomers and, you know, whatever. And again, to be fair, in places where the Democrats are in control, you know, there's a- Fascists. There's a, yeah, there's a different, yeah, there's a different dynamic that just is somewhat the mirror image. I don't want to, I don't want to get there, I don't want to make them too equal because I think there isn't. Anybody quite like Trump on the left in terms of the, you know, the atavistic kind of, but nonetheless. But I think what's interesting, and we were negative about- partisanship works on both sides
1: for sure. And I and I think what's what's interesting here is because of negative partisanship. You know, again, we always talk about like I mean we don't, but I mean people talk about the parties. Like, oh, big tent. They're, we have big tent parties. Yeah. And I mean, like, and yes. Technically, that is true, and it's true, honestly, more for institutional, like, electoral right. dynamic reasons. Look, ha, here, Wikipedia, time for, you know, Duverger's Law. <laughs> Look that up right. on Wikipedia, right? So there's reasons that we have a two-party system, and we tend to talk about it, and then we tend to sort of just let fall out of there. A lot of people tend to, well, they're big tent parties, and it's like, yeah, kind of, but the thing is, is that, you know, with the way that, uh, you know, number one, with the, the effects of negative partisanship, I think with changes in like the media environment, I think honestly even just give Donald Trump some credit specifically for creating his own kind of brand of conservatism, I'm putting that in quotes here, you know, within the party, you know, what you end up with is you end up with these different sets of Republicans. And if you know anyone who's sort of, you know, a never Trump kind of Republican, they're very quick to tell you they're not that kind of Republican. Right. You know, at the same time, you know, if you're an extremely conservative Republican uh, in Texas, who's not happy with the direction of leadership, like I have a pretty good guess what email lists you might be signed up for. Sure. Right. And there's a whole ecosystem for that. Now, what's interesting to me is, you know, sort of what we're watching on some ways is sort of how these different kind of factions and they're not clear lines. Some people are in a couple different factions. Right. But but how these different factions in the legislative part of this negotiate the fact that, you know, there are essentially these sub brands of the Republican Party that, you know, essentially mean that different attributes and different outcomes are just more important to different groups of people. And so for some sets of Republicans, the most important, again, this is why immigration and border is so important, because once you take care of that, then you can start to sort of jockey over, okay, who are we, whose policy areas are we taking care of? You know, are we taking care of the homeschool community? Are we taking care of the Second Amendment absolutists? you know, on this? Do we take care of them last session of? Can we go forward on anything of like that without upsetting, you know, the suburban Republicans who we are trying to move forward on issues like school safety and right. you know, parental rights because these things feel a little tough? And so part of it is we're watching these dynamics play out. But in some ways, the other piece of this is that, you know, and I think what all this is sort of about in some ways shows us, you know, there's a lot of tacit endorsement, but at the same time, you know, politicians are also risk-averse. right? And so, you know, the question that this sort of lays out is, you know, and what the data kind of raises, and we're doing this in a very kind of, you know, I would say schematic way, and maybe we'll come back yeah, and write something yeah. a little bit more more specific. But it does point to the fact that, you know, there is a certain amount of ex- – there's an exposure threshold on some of this stuff. But it's not it's still not clear to me even going through this data and talking about exactly where it is. Well, right? and I
0: think that's why – you know, I'm you know, I I think people, you know, a lot of the actors themselves would love to know exactly where it is. And that's a lot of the muddling that we're seeing. But but it is, you know, I mean, to go back, you know, I mean, to tie that together a little bit with your big tent sort of, you know, in the notion of parties. I mean, the parties are still coalitional and that's where those pressures come from. Right. But the coalitional... But the coalitions are now sorted differently Mm -hmm. than the days in which we used to just think about the big tents and that that this was inherently harboring really big contradictions that are defined by our historical memory of, you know, the Rockefeller Republicans versus the Goldwater Republicans, right? right? Or, you know, this – you know, even more – you know, probably more significant – the Southern Democrats, you know, the Southern – the Southern Democrats versus, you know, the other Democrats. Yeah, everybody else. I mean, those, you know, those distinctions are not not as sharp, and that's what's making it harder for people trying to keep these coalitions that are still have a lot of internal tensions in them. But they're not as sharp, you know. I mean, in some ways, the days, you know, when you were Lyndon Johnson and you're plotting your political career and you're trying to get to the White House, you know what you really have to do right there. Yeah, right. And you know that it's daunting. You know right. that you have to appeal to a burgeoning liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Yet, still keep all of your essentially reactionary Southern Democrats. You know, certainly reactionary in racial politics and civil rights politics. You got to keep them together. Yeah, it's a little. You know, it's just it's 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 a little it's a little fuzzier now. That the, that the parties are still coalitional and still have sharp kind of cleavages over issue emphasis and things like right. this. Um, but it's not it's not quite as obvious what you're trying to do, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think the reason for that is something that, you know, you and I have been dancing around, like, a lot in this podcast. And I mean, say, like, you know, just say it explicitly, yeah. you know, part of it has to do with, in some ways, I you know, I would say the... The declining sort of centrality or definitional, or even ability to define ideology in either party right now. Right. And so you know there there's just there just seem to be fewer touchstones where clearly everyone agrees. And you can say you know the Republican Party, you know it's sort of like I mean to my mind it's kind of like where you know what is small government? Yeah. You know I mean I mean one of the things that was interesting kind of going back and working on another piece on on some of the public ed space and you know. There's a point, I think, around 2015 when we asked, you know, essentially, you know, what would be most effective in, uh, in improving the public education system in Texas? And the plurality response among Republicans was essentially local control. Let right. the local school districts figure out. I, I presumably that was like it made a lot of sense because that's because, look, conservative rural school districts who don't want to talk about uh, social, you know, social emotional learning. They don't want to talk about any sort of DEI related stuff or, you know, the, that's your community. Yeah. And now what we're actually seeing is in some ways this like, well, actually, we're going to centralize, you know, these sorts of educational decisions at the state level in terms of what kind of curriculum looks like, what can be talked right. about. And it's interesting. I mean, again, look, I don't care. I mean, the, you know, whether you think it's hypocritical or not, it doesn't really matter. It's just it is what it is. It's politics. But the idea that you'd have a flip like that on something that was almost so core foundational yeah. to both small government and this idea of, you know, sort of the importance of kind of local institutions among Republicans. It's now basically those institutions in some ways are like the enemy. Yeah is a really remarkable shift, but it also just reflects, again, just the upheaval in both parties. And the Democrats have a similar issue in the sense that, you know, I think Democrats have a much better situation when they're just talking about class. But the Democratic coalition requires now to break out race from class in a way that creates a lot of conflicts among Democrats about how to message things, how to talk about things, where to focus, and whether they can do that in a way that's both respectful to the coalition, in quotes on one hand, but also on the other hand, is like electorally viable
0: yeah and ha- and how to implement you know multiple priorities that in the absence of Any an analog like to, am- to immigration right. and border security that which helps the republicans so i think that brings us back as we close out to you know what we should be looking forward to because i think a lot of these issues that we're talking about are going to you know they're you know they're very dynamic right now as we're in the committee hearing process in right. these very high level intense intense Committee hearings over some, over a lot of these issues, which we've been seeing and will continue to see, and then how those bills move.
1: I, well, I just want you know one thing about that. I think it's just really important to point out right now, and we've said this before, but I want to. Say, I don't think we said it this session. The people who show up in Austin to testify on these bills, it's important. I think, especially for I'm just especially for journalists who end up you know sort of covering these really intense hearings, and you hear these you know really often horrible stories. But look at that, and then look at this data that we're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, there's sort of a question of, hey, you know, 100 people signed up to test our or 200 people, and 80% were against this bill about, you know, transgender people. It's like, yeah, I understand that. Those people are mostly coming from Central Texas, Austin. Most, a lot of them are coming from Austin because where the capital is. But furthermore, look at the Republican electorate.
0: Yeah. So there's that. and And so I guess, you know, to tie it together, again, what I would say is— you know we're also going to see some of these other more proximate factors coming into play in the next in the next couple of weeks on a lot of these issues and the intera- and and we're going to see how they interact if at all with you know the the kind of if you will the kind of a level agenda items that are out there right and and we're going to see you know yet another you know, aspect of, you know, the pressure within each tent, particularly mm-hmm. in the Republican tent when it comes to institutional conflict and, and you know, frankly, in some ways, personal conflict between the leadership of the House and the leadership of the Senate um, and with, with frankly, Governor Abbott and the executive branch. And that's going to add another dimension that we're also going to start to see play out increasingly, probably not as, you know, we're already seeing it now, but in, in the next couple of months— that adds a whole other sort of sense of cleavage to all this. But I do think all of these, you know, the unearthing some of this public opinion data helps create what the context and and what the context for that and what they are maneuvering around. So with that, um, thanks to Josh for being here and digging out all that data. Uh, thanks again to our excellent production team and the dev studio in the college of liberal arts at UT Austin, uh, Wherever you find this podcast, we will almost certainly post some data related to this with a link to the, with another link to the podcast and links to data. You can find various cuts of the data that we've been talking about as always at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. So thank you for listening and we will be back soon with another second reading podcast. The second reading podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.